Have you ever thought back on your life and noticed that there are these small moments that led you to where you are today? I'm Alan Brooks from Building Momentum. In my new show, Breadcrumbs, I trace the pivotal moments of people's lives that lead them to where they are today. That I was asked to go backstage and I was able to meet Jesus. And I just very distinctly remember thinking, I want to do that. In the sunshine in this leather couch, I found my two big passions. I truly believe as an adult, I'm just trying to recreate that moment. It turns out that that was the beginning of a couple of decades in journalism. And that changed my life. Through storytelling and conversation, our show traces the circuitous trail of how the creatives and intellectuals of today got to where they are. On Breadcrumbs, we'll pick up these crumbs that were left behind and see how they led us to where we are today and leading us to who we're still becoming. Take a listen to Breadcrumbs, an exciting, independently run new podcast. I went home, I took the cassette tape out and put it in the cassette player. I turned it on and then I opened The Hobbit and started reading. And at the same time, for the first time in my life, the amazing band ACDC came out of the speakers. That afternoon in the, in the sunshine in this leather couch that I was lying on, I found my two big passions, which are like fantasy and storytelling and rock and roll music. So those paths started at that exact moment. Welcome to Breadcrumbs, a podcast that retraces the most pivotal steps in people's lives. I'm Alan Brooks. I'm the chief creative officer at Building Momentum. We're a creative problem-solving agency. We believe that all of us have a calling, a vibration, something undeniable within us. Sometimes we're put on a path that leads us to this calling in the fastest way possible, and other times the world gets in the way. But that calling never quiets. This show retraces those breadcrumbs, those pivotal moments in our lives, the ones that lead us back to ourselves and who we were meant to be. I want to unpack this through storytelling and conversation and hope that all of you listening can start thinking about your true north and if you're headed in the right direction. So let's get into it. Let's start breaking bread and follow the crumbs. My guest today is Bjarke Peterson, who's a LARP designer based out of Copenhagen, Denmark. LARP is live action role play for those uninitiated. And if you want to learn more about what LARPing is, The New Yorker just did an awesome piece all about it, which happens to feature Breadcrumb's own Bjarke Peterson. He creates wholly unique, bespoke experiences that you can only have in this world of, of what's called LARP, live-action role-play. And it's not like what they showed on Hawkeye, where people are running around Central Park hitting each other with foam swords. It's more about creating altered realities that we and those who choose to participate in agree to step inside the worlds of. And they are just some of the most interesting, most exciting, most unique, for lack of a better term, experiences you can you can engage in. And what's really cool about them and what he does is he asks for your participation. He asks for you to step into those worlds and change them with him, as opposed to other game designers and other artistic designers who create spaces where you are asked to be a passive participant or a passive observer, rather. He says, look... Here's the base I created. Now it's up to you. 
build it, change it, create it however you want to. But what I think is so cool about him is he's the kind of person that like when he was, you know, nine or 12 or whatever, however old he was when he discovered D&D and, and metal, he was like, oh, this is my world and this is where I'm going to be forever. And he pursued that in a way that was was supportive of that because not you know there are a lot of people who find their thing at twelve thirteen fourteen, and that's just something they love for the rest of their lives. Bjarka was like, no no no, that's what I do, right? I'm gonna go make this thing happen forever, and pursue like collaboration in the spaces of the things that I've loved forever. So. Let's strap in and follow some breadcrumbs. I am probably 11, 10, 11. I live in a small rural town in the deep, darkest countryside in Denmark. It's a small town, uh, maybe 2,000 people. My parents had the inn at the town, so everybody, of course, knew who we were and I was, which, of course, was highly annoying when I was a kid because before I made trouble, my parents knew that I was going to make trouble because people called them and told them what I was doing because there was not much to do in that little outback town. I come to school, I go through my classes, I have trouble sitting still as I've had all my life. Then at the end of the day, we're going to have a cooking class because all kids in Denmark go through like learning how to cook and clean in school. So everybody has that skill set. I think we made like meatballs or something. Thank you, social democracy. And then at the end of the class, my friend Jesper came to me and said, I have a cassette tape for you because we're back in the day in the mid 80s when cassette tapes was the thing. So uh, he gave me a cassette tape and of course it was unlabeled as they were in those days. He had probably copied it from another friend and it said, you need to listen to this. You need to listen to this. This is really good. And I was like, okay, okay. I put it in my bag and then I head home or instead of going home, I went to, I went to the library, which was close by where I lived. Because in that little town, there was only three things you could do in your pastime. One was sports, and uh, I wasn't super interested in sports. I was quite tall also as a kid. Now I'm six foot six, and controlling my limbs at that age was difficult. Second thing you could do was go to the library and read. And the third thing you could do was make trouble. And uh, as I already told, since my parents had the end, there was no, you, I could not make trouble because they would know before I, I even did the trouble. Yeah, which meant I ended up in the library a lot. Uh, where a couple of my friends also went and hung out and we read comic books, we played chess. I lost a lot, couldn't focus too much on the game. Those are the things that were more interesting. But I really enjoyed reading both comic books and books. And this particular day, I went there, read a couple of comic books, and then I went to the librarian, my favorite librarian called Tina. And I asked her, Tina, so I need a good book. I need a new good book. I have nothing to read. And she looked at me and then she said, okay, follow me. And then we went over to the grown-ups department. And I was remember, mm, I'm going to the grown-ups department. And she pulled out a book, gave it to me. And this was The Hobbit. So I put that book in my bag after that little rubber stamp had been put in the bag of the book. Still remember those. And then I went home. I took the cassette tape out and put in the cassette player. I turned it on and then I opened The Hobbit and started reading. And at the same time, for the first time in my life, the amazing band ACDC came out of the speakers. And this was the Highway to Hell album. The Hobbit is a very interesting book in a way that it is 
it is a story that goes from being very lighthearted and fun in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then slowly as the group of dwarves, Hobbit and, and Wizard, goes through this part of Middle-earth, the story becomes more and more dark and they grow up basically. So it's a coming of age story. And when they come out of the Lonely Mountain and the dragon is dead and, and they have to go back, then they are completely changed, of course. And not all of them make it. So it, it is very much a journey that starts going from lighthearted to scary. I think I realized there's something about that some sometimes decisions are very serious and they will change your life. And this is about changing your life uh, also. And it definitely changed my life as well. So I dove into that literature and so on. That afternoon in the, in the sunshine, in this leather couch that I was lying on, I found my two big passions, which are like fantasy and storytelling and rock and roll music. Both of those paths started at that exact moment. That was a good day, as I say. It's one of the good days of my life, absolutely. Oh my God, I loved it. I, and I love that story. And it's as if you're day started in one era and ended in a whole nother era. Can you tell me a little bit more about your community and the world you lived in? I mean, tell me more about your town. It was a fairly Christian area in Denmark standards. Oh, okay. Were your parents religious? Not at all. No, no. not at all. So, and uh, I remember when I hit seventh grade, there was like a a Christian free school opened up and then about a third of my classmates, they moved school to, to be in that place. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. So there was sort of a, a split culture in, in the city as well. So you went, you went to heathen school with your heathen books and your heathen music. Yeah. Well, so like some parents in our generation, cause I think you're just a little older than I am. And for listeners to understand, Bjark and I have been friends for Gosh, five, six years now? Mostly because I accosted you at a conference and made you be my friend, which seems to be a theme in your life. Yeah. But so our generation of parents had a, an interesting relationship with the media of the 80s and early 90s where, like, that was the panicky era of music is is going to destroy kids' minds, video games are going to destroy kids' minds, D&D is going to destroy kids' minds. How did your parents feel about you bringing home ACDC? Were they hip, for lack of a better term, or...? Well, they, um, I think they were just happy that I, I found stuff that was interesting. So, so oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember at all there's been any panicky things. I also quite early on, because my dad was a tech geek, we got a ZX Spectrum computer. I think maybe I was nine or something like yeah. that and, and started gaming at that age. And then later on at Christmas, I got a Commodore 64 and spent basically all my time with that, either that or running around outside or being yeah. at the library. So, yeah, I think they gave you a lot of space. So. Bjarka, I swear to God, like, I've joked about this in real life with you, but, like, we are the same, you and I. I mean, we are practically identical in height and build. We have the same affinity or capacity for growing facial hair while I have eschewed it. You have embraced it. But, like, Commodore 64 was my first computer, too. And it was one of those things. My mom just brought it home one day and was like, here is a thing. I don't know what it is or how to use it. My mom was not tech savvy. But it opened up this whole world of games and gaming for me. Were you able to – I know you, you found D&D somewhat around the same era of your life. But did you find video games as much of a solace 
and uh, home because that's what it, they were for me. You know, for me, games were this place where I found story and experiences that I couldn't have in real life. And I was an only child of a single mom, so there's a lot of time at home by myself falling into these worlds. Definitely. I spent a lot of time for exactly that, and, and it, it was a place to experience stuff that, of course, weren't available to me, both things that I would like to have experienced or, or thought I would love to see, but also a lot of stuff that I didn't know existed, right? So in Denmark, the only thing, the only television channel that when I was a kid until I was maybe 13 or something like that, that was the one, the national TV channel. Oh, wow. Was, so we had one TV channel and three radio channels, and that was, and then there came a local radio channel sometimes around this time as well, and that was about it. That was how you saw the world, and and of course there's not a lot since they had to appeal to everybody it was not like there was not a lot of nerd culture at the time for example so i i remember vividly when on, on television they were talking about this the dangerous uh, role-playing game uh, dons and dragons and that very iconic red box set yeah 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 appeared on television and and they had an interview with a priest about how this could you know ruin you and and, and all that stuff and psychologists also said that they could lead to i don't know insanity or something like that and i was like okay i i want that so <laughs> I mean, they sat, they made it sound awesome. They were like, if you play this game, you're going to end up, you know, partying with other degenerates and, and drugs and orgies, and it's going to be terrible. And all the nerdy weird kids were like, oh, wait, what? We can do that? Yeah, it was yes, amazing. It. it also it was a great way of teaching, uh, like learning English, because, of course, I was just starting to learn English in the schools. And it is not like now where you are exposed to YouTube from yeah. your small kids. So like when I meet like three and four year old uh, Danish kids, they already sort of somewhat speak English already because they get they consume so much of their entertainment in, in English already. So, Cute. so oh, you cool. know, and then in the book, there was difficult words like alignment and, and so on. And, you know, I didn't know what that was. So they didn't have translations or anything like that? Oh, no, no, that came years later, like three or four years later. Wait, so did you read The Hobbit in English? Too? No, that was in, that was already okay. translated okay. in Danish. And the Danish Queen have made illustrations for Tolkien as well. So, Wait, so, what? Yeah, yeah, so the Danish Queen is a massive Tolkien fan. As a late teenager, early 20s, she made illustrations and got them to Tolkien and, and he approved of them. So many, many years later when I was uh, working in, so when the three... The first trilogy of, of Lord of the Rings movies came out. The Queen, of course, came to the premieres. And we did like, yeah, big gala premieres where people, where we dressed up as uh, the characters and, and built elaborate sets and, and so on. And when we came to Return of the King, then it was more than 300 extras and in the big amusement park Tivoli in the middle of Copenhagen and all of the crew came and Peter Jackson came. And, and you were running that? No, I, I was part of running it. It wasn't my company running it at the yeah. time. Yeah. We ended Wait. up getting getting drunk with John Rice Davis and, and, and having fun. So that was, a good, that was a good day also. Yeah, yeah. Bjarke, okay. That's unacceptable. I'm angry that I haven't heard any of these stories before. And now all I want to hear about is this. Who did you play? So for the second, for the two towers, we got a professional prop maker or mask maker to make us Urukai. Of course, you were Urukai. Then we built outfits and were two giant Urukai at the entrance to this. And then all the celebrities of Denmark came and we scared the shit out of them. Pardon my French, uh, which was great fun. And then Christopher Lee came with his wife because she's Danish. And she, of course, wanted to come where and hang out with the Queen. So he came and then we followed him around and talked to him a little bit. Like when the movie... Well, of started. course, he was your leader. You yeah, had yeah. To. So, yeah. You so know. like 15 minutes in the movie, he came out again because he didn't want to see it. And then we chatted a little bit and he was yeah, very polite and nice, nice gentleman. This is the thing that I love so much about talking with you and getting to spend time with you is your deep love of these things 
that is so evident, whether they be metal shows or fantasy or LARPing or whatever it is, but the way in which you discuss them is such an even-keeled, even-tempered, relatively, not even monotone, but just, this is like, yeah, I just, you know, went to this global premiere for Lord of the Rings, and I spent a lot of time with Christopher Lee, and uh, it was a delightful evening. We all had a, a lovely time, and it was great. I feel like you could... Say that you be like, well, I got a ticket on one of these uh, trips going to space, and it was uh, deeply emotionally transformative, and I will never see the Earth the same way, but it was um, it was great. You know, we had a good time. That was, that was, yeah, it was fun. Fun. That, that was that's, nice. That's amazing. What a cool moment for you, though, that, like, this thing that set you off on a journey of story and games and storytelling, The Hobbit, kind of came to full fruition when you got to be even tangentially part of that world. So how did you get from, you know, young person, lover of things into then a creator of similar things? How did that transition happen? I, it started a few years later, of course, when I got that red box set. I still have it in my shelf somewhere with like my first adventure and my first character and so on. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's great fun. I really enjoy that it still exists. So, but when you start creating role-playing games and then you start becoming a storyteller and a creator and of course you start with you buy supplements or from the the company but very quickly i started making my own because that was the fun part creating worlds and and, mm -hmm. and putting characters in them and, and tell stories and of course you realize very early on with role-playing games that it's not something you do yourself it's a collaborative effort where you co-create stuff with the other mm -hmm. players and it only works if you, if you let go of some of the control. And it was I didn't, of course, think in that terms, think in those terms back in the day. But it's very clear that it's it's been very influential in the way I tell stories. That it's not about the you know that fallacy about the lone auteur that comes up with his their genius uh, right. stories in a vacuum. This is something you do together with people, and only by listening to what they find interesting, you can make the best possible stories. So, of course, I started doing that and then played a lot of, of a tabletop role-playing game as it is and, and tried LARP out also early on in my mid-teens somewhere, but there wasn't really a community where I was at all. So it started with, I finished high school and then I moved to Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark, to go to university. And there I met other role-playing nerds. You found and, your tribe. Uh, I found my tribe and, and one of my female study buddies said that there's this like live action role playing campaign about vampires going on in Copenhagen. Would you want to be part of that? That's, and I was like, this sounds like the coolest thing I've ever heard of because I knew the tabletop role playing game Vampire the Masquerade, which came out in the very in the early 90s. And, and now we are in around 96, I think 96. Yeah. And uh, so I went to this role-playing, a live role-playing game that was played perversively all across Copenhagen. I think we were 140 people, all pretending to be different clans of vampires battling out in the city. There was like two different LARPs at the time. One was like a monthly fantasy campaign, and the other one was uh, like 100 people being secretly vampires uh, hiding from humans and so on. And that sounded, you know, super cool. So that's the second break promise when she brings me to this LARP. And then I, I completely get engulfed in that subculture. It was called Copenhagen Chronicles. And this was the second. And I played Catholic priest turned vampire. There was around 100 people and, and we were in a specific clan. We were like 10 or 12 people and we tried to, you know, control the city 
uh, and fighting off the other vampire clans that also want control over the city and trying to get away from the vampire hunters from the Vatican and, you know, all sorts of fun little things. As far as I remember, there was like maybe 12, 15 different locations that were in the LARP, primarily like people's apartments, but people also played at like bars or driving around in cars, trying to find each other, which of course is super hard, uh, trying to find a hundred people in a million people city of course there was like planned meetings and you went to the uh, the prince of the city which was sort of the regent and you tried to convince him to you know be on your side and and plot and scheme against the others and go and try to assassinate them uh, at the, whatever headquarter they had there was like car chases of course was stupid and highly dangerous but when people are immersed in a the world then they they do stuff that they might not do in their own life so and of course felt totally in love with, with that and then I started helping out there and then I learned a lot about how to organize these things through my now also dear friend Henrik Fridstoft who has we've been doing this stuff for yeah for more than 25 years together and at some point we start I started a role-playing club just to, to do more of it and we started to do children's LARPing for eight to 13 year olds and that's mm. fantasy in the forest and like as after school activity and this was like every other Saturday and we when we were the most kids it was like we were like 16 adults and 450 kids oh my god out, oh battling, battling it out in the forest uh, for five hours I thought you meant like it was, when you were like it was an after school program with kids you were like gonna say you know you were you had like 30 you had someone gave you control of 400 children yeah the parents came at 10 and dropped the kids off at the forest and we were like 16 grown-ups everybody around you know 18 to 30 or, or something like that and then quote unquote uh, grown-ups yeah quote unquote grown-ups and then without no training at all of course and then we went into the forest and fought it out for two hours and then there was a like a one hour lunch break and then two two hours more and then the parents came and picked up their kids denmark's wild man i have been remiss to not come visit you on the other side of the obviously global pandemic yeah fine and of course there's a lot of structural elements to why this is possible and one of them is is of course that there's a lot of youth funding so when you do stuff for kids then you get funded by the municipality and when we oh. had an organization we got money for each kid who was a member so they paid maybe 10 bucks a year to be a member of this club and then the then the city paid us i don't know let's say 100 bucks per kid so you had operational budgets that were subsidized by outside groups so you didn't have to come up with this whole cloth see that's again and and the second thing is of course uh, there's this uh, law of way in the nordics where any public forest you can use whatever you want to except some areas you're not allowed to camp and you're of course not allowed to ruin the forest so right we, we just uh, contacted the people running the public owned forest and then they said yeah of course you can come every two weeks and we didn't have to pay anything for it so that of course helps and the third thing is that when you run events like this the, you do not have to insure the participants the parents insurance covers Oh man, the kids. So we that's delightful. Problems. There's no like liability concept in in the Nordics in that regard. Uh, so, so that of course also speeds up the processes of these things. That there's a support system where we don't have to fear to get sued all the time. We get public money and, and yeah. to to be able to run it, and we don't have to pay rent for the space. So that's why it can grow so fast. Also in the Nordics, that's. Awesome. And then out of that, then some of those parents, of course, had jobs in companies that thought this looked very cool. And, and it was, this was at the height of the, like the Lord of the Rings movies. Fantasy was everywhere by 
lab buffer swords in the supermarket and you know it, it was everywhere. wow oh wow wait so like larp as an activity had become mainstream in denmark at that point yeah so during that at the tail end of the movies there was a report done by the by the forests the, the public owned forests and uh, LARPing was the fourth biggest uh, youth activity uh, for forest use, and I think the fifth or sixth biggest pastime activity for kids around ten to twelve. So it oh, was wow. very, it was very big at the time. It's still quite big, and and it's in schools everywhere, and, and after school programs everywhere. Oh, that's so uh, cool! So these parents, of course, they thought this looks really cool. We also want to be like Lord of the Rings thing. So they they asked us, could you make like an event for? For my company, we are 40 people and, and and said, yeah, of course we can do that. And then we we, we took a marginal sum for that. And of course, quickly right. realized that when you do events for, for companies, it's a vastly different beast. And also the budgets are vastly different and you need to get actually paid for your time and not just yeah. do it as a pastime activity. And then we did a few of those. And then at some point we got our like first gig, which was doing pre, the, the Danish Royal Theater were doing the Three Musketeers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the issues they had was that small, this was a family show. And, and one of the things that it's a two hour show and they had troubles with kids sitting still for that long because they did not understand the story or it was too long and too boring. So they asked us to do like a, like a, a LARP where the kids went to the Musketeer Academy. And then they learned all the characters and what the like the goals of the Musketeers were. So when they went in and saw the play an hour later, they were suddenly the experts of the story and could you know tell their parents what was actually going on. And, and as you also know, that there's nothing better for a parent when the kid is the expert. So uh, that was a great success. Uh, and, and we did that a full summer with Danish Royal Theatre. I sure know a lot more about a lot of things now that I have an 11-year-old who is the expert in a lot of things. And chooses to share those those things with me. So how did you turn this into your job, right? I mean, like, that's the thing that I'm curious about because a lot of people play D&D. A lot of people read The Hobbit. I, again, I don't know how I missed any of this shit when I was a kid because I was a Marvel, complete Marvel zombie, comic book, video game, nerd. I, and you know what it was? I didn't have a Sherpa, right? I didn't have someone older than me. I didn't have an older brother or a parent or a a neighborhood kid who was like, hey, we're playing this game in my basement. Come over on Thursday. You're going to have to make a character. You know, I had friends doing that with like punk music and go-go and and all that stuff, but I never had a Sherpa for that. So I didn't get to The Hobbit until I read it to my now 11-year-old four years ago. So what what I'm curious about is how did you turn, you know, immersed in ACDC and 80s hair bands and fantasy novels and things like that. How did you go from that to crafting these for a, for a living? I'm at LARPing conference in Denmark that I am helping running. I'm head of program and I'm standing in the reception and suddenly this American guy about my age arrives and says, hey, I'm Brody. Uh, I'm here to talk. And clearly he hasn't read the material because I remember talking to him or mailing with him like five months earlier about him wanting to come and contribute to the program and I said you need to buy a ticket and you need to do all these things to be able to be on the program because it it is a subculture it is the world's leading uh, LARPing conference it's called uh, Knudelpunkt or Nodal Point 
and it travels between the four Nordic countries, or four of the Nordic countries, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Finland. And he had misunderstood that, and I was like, okay, but there's no room for you, but you can, of course, be on the program, yada, yada. And then day passes, and we we sit and chat, and then uh, he's asking a lot of questions about LARPing, and if I know about producing games, and I've done a lot of LARPs at that point, and I've done a lot of professional LARPs also for companies and so on. And then at the end of the conference, he asks me if I want to help him make a LARP, because he is very interested in the way that this participatory subculture, how it works and how what happens when you embed it into like a high art context. And I say, sure, that sounds like a good idea. Let's let's do that. I'm like, he's never going to contact me again. And then he leaves. And then three weeks pass. And then he calls me and says, I need to do a, an art piece for one of the leading sculpture park exhibitions in Europe, in Arnhem, in Holland, in six months. We have a budget of, I don't know, 80,000 euros or something like that, if I want to come and create that with him. And then, of course, I have the choice of, like, following this crazy American that I hardly know or not. And, and of course, I did that. And we went and did five several day long performances in this sculpture park in that exhibition. And we've been working together ever since and, and done stuff in the new museum in New York and Hammer Museum in LA and festivals all, all over you, like US and, and Europe. And the, my development as a creator of these things vastly accelerated by all the long talks about how to navigate something like the high art world. And because with the art also comes more than 100 years of art criticism. So you cannot just, you know, make things on a subculture level because it will be measured up against more than 100 years of artworks, right? So suddenly it's it's serious and it's not just whatever fun you're going to have and you can't, you can half-ass it. It has to be like really watertight. So there's a lot of participatory performance art from the late 50s through the 70s, which was sort of the golden era. So for example, when talking to to Brody about, okay, we have these themes that we want to explore. And then I come up, what about, let's, could we do it this way? And then he says, no, because in 1963, this artist did this thing and it looks a little bit like this. So that has already been done. And if we do it in that way, then we'll be slaughtered because then it's just a like a cheap copy of something that happened 50 years ago or 60 years ago and so on. So it's about as soon as you step into that space, you are, you are compared to all, all like participatory art performances that has happened in the world. So suddenly it's it, there's a lot of, you need to be very specific into what you do. And they had this thing that uh, when they open the festival week, there's no, the music starts the last five days, but you could come there, you can set up your tent. And basically it's a, it's a, it's a pretty shitty camping ground with 80,000 people drinking a lot of this is in, in just outside Copenhagen. So they wanted to have some stuff that could maybe activate people and make them, do better things. And at that time, one of the big sponsors of the festival was the Danish clothing brand Hummel. And they have like a very Buddha-focused, good karma direction. For example, they don't, they don't use money on marketing. They only use money on projects that makes cool shit. Like, for example, sponsoring the Afghani Female Soccer League and just giving clothes and training equipment. And so, so they do stuff like that. So here they wanted to spread good karma on the festival campsite or festival uh, area so we made a small 
become a card game. So on a card, you could, for example, say, give a stranger the biggest high five you have ever given anybody. And then you do that and then you have, then that's fun. And then you hand the card over to them and then they go out and make, you know, the next high five. And if you want to do more, then you come to a specific place on the festival grounds and then you can compete for like gear from, from this brand or tickets to next year's festival by doing good deeds for other people. And it could be like, find somebody that are clearly in love and make a three course dinner with music and everything. And, and you need to do that on a festival ground and, and you know, uh, clean somebody's camp. So it's, uh, you know, like new and fresh or help people carry their luggage or, you know, like many, many different things or make a human pyramid or stuff like that. And then you gather points and get a, you know, a fun experience with strangers. We did it for four years and that was about the last two years, more than 10,000 of the festival goers were playing it. So I think one of my main drivers when I do stuff is that LARP is such a powerful medium that it can transform you. Mm-hmm. So it is definitely an experience where you, you go into a magic circle or world where rules are different and then you are for a brief time, you're allowed to be a lot of stuff that you're not allowed to be in your own life. And this is not necessarily escapism, but it's about getting a different worldview. And you come out of that strong emotional experience changed and you have made new friends and you have definitely got a new viewpoint on how life can be. When it's good, that's what happens to the participants. Friend, I, I'm so sad every time we talk because it it reminds me that you are half a world away, and I so enjoy every minute that we get to spend together. And I cannot wait for that to happen in person again, sometime. Wow. I, I am hoping to come that direction next year. So I will keep you informed. So two quick questions to wrap up: uh, Parallel Universe, Bjarka. It's a whole other world. You have your sliding doors moment, step on the butterfly moment. Something happened. Instead of picking up ACDC in the 80s, you picked up Duran Duran. So everything else is the same. How is Parallel Bjarka different? Well, I would love to say that it was exactly the same and it was just a detour with Duran Duran. But, <laughs> uh, I think maybe a more mundane life of stayed in the rural Denmark and did like many of my classmates did, which was, you know, dream of having a house at the outskirts of town and uh, two and a half kids and dog and a Volvo maybe. And I see many, many of my old school friends, they are very happy in that life. Maybe there. Listen, as a, a haver of a small house outside of a big city with two kids and no more, zero, 2.0 kids, period, and a dog, it's not so bad. It's pretty great. I, don't have, I have a Nissan though, not a Volvo. So a similar but different question. Is that 11-year-old happy with how you turned out? I think the 11-year-old could not possibly imagine that this was something that you could do for a living. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I, I'm very happy about where I am. I, I get to That's do cool, cool stuff every day, and I get to create worlds for people who are profoundly happy afterwards, and they come back again and again. And there's so many people who say I've changed their lives. Oh. And I'm not saying that in like an ego way, but it's just that this form of LARPing can be extremely powerful and make people... A step away from whatever life that they ha- are stuck in, because I think we all know people who are stuck in their life and don't know how to get out of it. And, and if you get a little bit of, a, if you get a break from that reality for a few days, then maybe you, you get a little bit of energy to maybe reconsider some of the things that you're doing. 
And if I can be a small part of that because they are doing the hard work themselves by participating and creating their own stories, right? Then I think that's a good place to be. I don't remember who, who said that. If, if you could get to a place that when people think of you, they smile, then you have led a good life. And I think that's, that's a good goal I have in my life. Well, it is absolutely true of me every time. So you, you get one. No, I mean, I, I, think, I don't think there's anything bragging about what you just said. I think that that is a blessing. What a lovely way to view the, the things that you do and, and do professionally. Not all of us can get to say that. And, and I think a lot of us strive to get there. So I'm so happy, so incredibly happy that you're able to, to get there. You were able to get there. Again, Bjarke, this was just, I, I, I cannot appreciate your time more, your, your presence and your, your friendship, truthfully. And one day we will finally get to work together again. One day, one day, my friend. If you were inspired by what we talked about today, you might be inspired by what our company, Building Momentum, does. We solve for impact. We're a creative problem-solving agency that helps people gain the confidence and permission to solve problems on their own using a whole variety of tools to do so. 3D printing, laser cutting, welding, empathy, facilitation, drones, uh, electronics, robotics, dance, podcasts. If you have a problem, like we all do, we would love to be a part of solving it with you. Find us on the web at www.buildmo.com. That's www.buildmo.com.